1: The Bowery Boys episode 352.
0: The birth of Black Harlem. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com/slash Bowery Boys.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young.
0: And this is Tom Myers, and today we're exploring the origin story of one of the most historically important neighborhoods in New York. Actually, one of the most important in America, really, Harlem. Now, Harlem
1: is more than a place. It's a symbol of black heritage and culture in the United States. By 1920... It was becoming the capital of Black America, where so many African American thinkers, artists, writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs would live and work that it would spawn a renaissance.
0: A Harlem Renaissance. And how? In an era of so much institutional racism, even in New York, how did Black Harlem come to be? Now, you probably learned a bit about the Harlem Renaissance in school, but did you know that, that Harlem actually has roots that extend back to the city's Dutch period? The name is literally Dutch. Harlem. Just keep putting A's in there.
1: <laughs> During the late 19th century, Harlem became the home of upwardly mobile immigrant groups, white immigrant groups, Irish, and German, and later Eastern European Jewish immigrants all staking their claim to the American dream in newly developed housing here.
0: But then an extraordinary shift occurred, uh, beginning in the first decade of the 20th century. A very specific set of circumstances arose in Upper Manhattan that allowed, really for the first time, African-American New Yorkers to stake out a piece of that same American dream for themselves.
1: But not, of course, without great struggle. So today's show is the first of a two-part series here. On today's show, we'll chart the early history of Harlem and explore the early years of the neighborhood's extraordinary and quite historic demographic shift.
0: This is a story of real estate and, and realtors. Greg, right, we just don't yes. talk about realtors enough on the show.
1: <laughs> no, we're going to talk about a lot of realty.
0: <laughs> but, but not just any realtor, because we'll be telling the story of the man who earned the nickname the Father of Harlem.
1: So how did Harlem become Harlem? How did a former Dutch village become, in the words of writer Alan Locke, the pulse of the Negro world by
0: 1925? So join us as we hop on the IRT to explore the creation of Black Harlem.
1: So, the story of Harlem. Mm -hmm. Now, we are going to spend much of our time in the late 19th century, early 20th century here. Mm -hmm. But, as we mentioned, the history of Harlem goes back many decades. In fact, it goes back centuries.
0: Yeah, back to the Dutch days, when it was but a wee small village. And the story actually goes back farther than that, when Native Americans lived and farmed here. But the first Dutch settlement popped up here in the mid-17th century when New Harlem was uh, formally incorporated by Peter Stuyvesant in 1660. The name was given to it by Dutch settlers after the Dutch town of Harlem uh, that's located just about 10 or 12 miles west of Amsterdam.
1: And when you say a small village, like, you're not kidding here.
0: Oh, no. there. There's a great map of New Harlem in 1670, You see, it really only has about two main roads, and most of the two dozen or so homes were located between these two roads, okay? The whole village roughly fell between today's Lexington Avenues and the Harlem River from about 117th Street up to about 126th Street.
1: So more or less the northern portion of today's East Harlem is kind of the, the starting spot here and it was mostly farmers here right
0: yes rather simple living up here and and awfully remote you know because getting down to new amsterdam took a lot of effort given the state of the roads or the unpredictability of sailing or you know floating down the river to get there
1: so the dutch weren't here for long because in 1664 of course the the british take over and how does this affect this village here
0: Well, the residents of New Harlem were pretty much left alone, although the village was officially renamed. You know, the Brits had renamed New Amsterdam, New York, and New Harlem was rechristened Lancaster.
1: Very British.
0: (laughs) Yes, very British. And surprise, surprise, it was a term that nobody used. They just they just kept calling it Harlem. The village grew over this colonial period. There were some inns, there was a stop for the journey to and from New York. And how many residents did this village have during the colonial era? Well, it would grow at the beginning of the British period, about 100 residents in the village to about 800 or so um, in the larger Harlem district by about 1790. And to bring it into today's story a little bit, very few of the residents were black although there were hundreds of blacks, most of whom were enslaved, living on Manhattan Island at the time.
1: And obviously, when we're talking Upper Manhattan and as we approach the early 19th century here, there's a lot actually going on up here in terms of what we call Harlem and Upper Manhattan today.
0: Yeah, outside of this little village of Harlem, there was a lot of land that was being farmed, in upper manhattan but by the mid-1700s upper manhattan had also become quite a destination for wealthy new yorkers you know who were looking for uh, places to escape from the city many prominent families built country homes or or moved up here entirely to get away from the city that was rapidly expanding to the south and very few of these still stand today, however, one that's still with us is um, is a lavish 19 room estate that was built by Robert Morris in 1766 on more than a hundred acres of land and it stretches between the Harlem and the Hudson rivers in today's Washington Heights
1: now this is one of our favorite places in upper Manhattan the, the Morris Jamel Mansion, mm-hmm. And it's up here in Washington Heights officially today. And speaking of Washington, you know, during the Revolutionary War, he was even headquartered at the house at one point.
0: During the Battle of Harlem Heights in September of 1776, uh, which was his first victory in the war?
1: And, of course, if we're talking, you know, the Revolutionary War figures of the day, there's there's another prominent one who would plant a house up in this area just a little bit west of that site of the old village.
0: I think you're talking about his Washington's former aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton, who, by 1802, um, had decided to move his family up here to Upper Manhattan to enjoy the fresh air and the nature And it was here that he built his manor, Hamilton Grange. And all of this,
1: by the way, is very beautiful and stately and bucolic even. But, you know, once the 19th century comes along, there's a lot of room up here for development and a lot of big changes in store for Harlem.
0: Well, a lot of big changes happening south of here in New York as well, especially after the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825. And even as the commissioner's plan of 1811 was staking out land up here and staking off, you know, the avenues and the streets, Harlem largely remained very rural and undeveloped in the first half of the 19th century because it was hard to get to. You know, it it took forever to get there by land or water, But this would all change when the horse-drawn railways finally started service along 4th Avenue in 1834. That was the New York and Harlem Railroad. Finally, Harlem, that village, was connected reliably to New York.
1: Interestingly, throughout the decades, the city, which was, you know, in the southern area of Manhattan, was getting closer to Harlem because, of course, it was growing northward. And with the creation of Central Park, it was getting even closer.
0: Yes. In the 1860s and 70s, that initially lured wealthy and middle class New Yorkers looking for more living space. And this land here north of Central Park was being opened for development. Uh, This was being pushed along by Tammany Hall and in his day by Boss Tweed, who saw Harlem's development as a really big opportunity for Tammany and obviously for himself as well. You know, we've discussed on several other shows how Tammany really liked those big projects. And that included laying down roads up here like... 7th Avenue and 6th Avenue, um, which the city renamed Lenox Avenue.
1: And of course, you know, once the blocks were staked off here, it wasn't just Tammany that was coming up to develop things. You had all kinds of speculation happening here by the mid-19th century.
0: Oh yeah, buying and selling land before anything was even built upon it. This was sending values skyrocketing. It was kind of like the GameStop. Of its time,
1: <laughs> and 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 like the GameStop, to continue the metaphor, it of course would come crashing down in around 1873
0: with the Panic of yes.
1: 1873.
0: But eventually, things would pick up again. Development would occur, especially because of new transit options up here, like the elevated railroads. We discussed in our East Side Elevated show last summer how immigrant communities were drawn from the Lower East Side to the Upper East Side and to Yorkville with the opening of these elevated railroads along 2nd and 3rd Avenue, Uh, but they were also drawn up to Harlem. The... Earliest German-Jewish community in Harlem dates back to 1869, which was a community relocating from the Lower East Side that founded its synagogue in Harlem in 1873. And that community grew and would flourish, and many from this wave were middle-class and upper-class German Jews who were living in single-family row houses that were built in today's central Harlem. And then by the 1870s, the Irish community, meanwhile, was generally speaking less affluent and living in today's East Harlem in the new tenement buildings that were being constructed, which were in many ways like the old tenement buildings that they had left in lower Manhattan. But there would be a lot of tenement construction taking place once those 2nd and 3rd Avenue elevateds opened over by the trains along 2nd and 3rd Avenue.
1: But of course, Tom. Uh, another very important elevated was opened on the kind of other side of the island. Uh, that would be uh, in the late 1870s, and that would be the Ninth Avenue Elevated
0: Railroad. Right, the Ninth Avenue Elevated. Even though Ninth Avenue doesn't really run into Harlem.
1: No, you're right. Actually, around 110th Street, so you know, very near that steep Morningside Park, the train curves and goes up. 8th Avenue, which today in Harlem is known as Frederick Douglass Boulevard. So then by the late 1870s, 1880s, there is a German Jewish population, there's an Irish population,
0: and there's also an Italian population, which dates back to the early 1870s, but really took off in 1878 when immigrants from the town of Pola, near Salerno, settled on east 115th street by the late 1880s manhattan's largest and really first little italy was located up here in east harlem but no surprise with all of
1: these vibrant immigrant groups making harlem their home land values here soared and thousands of new homes were constructed brownstones and then eventually of course apartment buildings
0: And Harlem has some of the most beautiful residential architecture in the city.
1: There are three main historic districts in Harlem today. Seems like there should be more, but there's there's three. There's the Central Harlem Historic District, St. Nicholas Historic District, and the Mount Morris Park. And all three of these preserve collections of architecture from the 1880s. And what was interesting then is by the 1890s, you actually had further immigrant groups moving up here, largely... Eastern European Jewish immigrants in West Harlem or Central Harlem Harlem around Park Avenue to over to where that new elevated train was over on 8th Avenue with more demand. There was more speculation, just more homes for more affluent white middle class and even upper middle class families. For instance, the I mentioned the Saint Nicholas Historic District. Well, actually, it is perhaps more commonly referred to today by another name, Strivers Row. They were constructed in the early 1890s as quote high quality housing for well to do buyers.
0: So that's housing, but was Harlem also developing businesses to cater to these upscale residents? Absolutely. In fact,
1: 125th Street, which is a major east-west thoroughfare here in, in Harlem, became a theater district with large venues like Oscar Hammerstein's Harlem Opera House, you also had the Harlem Casino over at 7th Avenue and 124th Street, a theater that could house 10,000 people. So clearly there were a lot of theater goers up here <laughs> um, in Harlem in the late 19th century. And you also had huge department stores that opened like Bloomstein's, uh which opened in
0: 1898. I'm hearing a lot of German down on 125th. Mm-hmm. Was there an African American community living in in Harlem at the time?
1: There was, actually, by the 1890s and it was mainly on the east side over near the Italian presence of East Harlem and mostly the employees of households on the west side. Now, as you mentioned, you know, throughout the history of Harlem, people of color have lived and worked the land here. As enslaved people and free. And I wanted to bring up one particular site of interest at 126th Street and 2nd Avenue, which was a burial ground for free and enslaved black people that dates back to the colonial era and was discovered under a bus depot during an excavation. They found the remains of dozens of bodies that had been buried here and forgotten and built over when this land was sold and developed. In the 1850s. As of press time, there is a memorial planned to mark this spot, but it is not completed. But this speaks to the silence of centuries, of history erased by the city, and of the history of people of color in particular, which is a side effect not just of ingrained racism in American society and, and the basic way that New York has operated for generations, but it really also speaks to how, in particular, in the 19th century, the city kept growing, right, and kept getting developed without regards to the basic needs of its residents.
0: Mm-hmm. And you recorded a show a few years ago about the history of several different historically black communities that were wiped away by the city as it developed. For example, Seneca Village, which uh, had been a thriving community. Um, that was wiped off the map by the development of Central Park.
1: So much of early black history in New York has simply vanished. New Yorkers of color during the Gilded Age, which, you know, let's be honest, was a mostly all-white celebration, could and did have the education and the ambition and eventually would have the wealth of white society, but they could never enter into it simply due to their skin color where certain immigrant groups also face this challenge, you know, in certain decades, they at least had the benefit of racial similarity with the mainstream that would allow them to assimilate. But that's not the case with black New Yorkers and with other people of color. And it's this unbreakable color line that extended into the basic fundamental
0: realities of New York life, namely where you lived. So then Around the year nineteen hundred, was there a a neighborhood that was predominantly black? There actually wasn't uh, for
1: a variety of reasons, one being that after the Civil War draft riots in eighteen sixty three, a lot of black residents naturally fled the city for their safety. And although you know the population would build up again to a, about sixty thousand black New Yorkers in the year nineteen hundred that was a combination of longtime residents, southern transplants, and migrants from the West Indies. You know, this was still just collectively 60,000 was still a very small number in comparison to these white ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. And so black residents tended to live on the outskirts of working class neighborhoods and mostly on the West Side in the Tenderloin, in Hell's Kitchen, and in San Juan
0: Hill. Tenderloin, Hell's Kitchen, San Juan Hill, basically the entire west side of Manhattan, right? Mm -hmm. Tenderloin, that whole area around today's Penn Station. And and San Juan Hill isn't even there anymore because it was wiped away in the mid-20th century to develop Lincoln Center. And I'm going to assume that living conditions, uh, apartment or tenement conditions were not great here.
1: No, these were not, quote, desirable neighborhoods in the parlance of the New York Gilded Age. Black residents were actually forced to live in the worst conditions in these neighborhoods while paying the most for the dubious privilege to live here. To quote from author Gilbert Osofsky's classic 1966 history of Harlem, quote, As Negroes moved in, whites moved to more desirable residences in upper manhattan when new york city built its elevated lines on the west side the clatter and noise of the new trains made for less than pleasant living in these places and those who could afford it moved out apartments were then taken over by blacks many recent southern migrants who were forced to accept second-class accommodations at first-class prices of the 27 ethnic groups in the neighborhood negroes paid the highest rents unquote
0: and as if it wasn't bad enough that they were being overcharged for substandard housing the black community here also had to watch out for their own safety you know in mm-hmm. particularly in this neighborhood
1: yeah i mean generally speaking law enforcement and the courts were generally not there for the protection of black residents And the public sentiment in the mainstream press, of course, was hardly favorable either, even when black people were the victims of crimes. Now, one disgraceful example of this occurred on August 13th, 1900, when an incident in the Tenderloin between a black man named Arthur Harris and an undercover white officer named Robert Thorpe, who was roughing up Arthur's girlfriend. Well, Thorpe hit Harris with his billy club, and was then stabbed by Harris and later died of his injuries. The white Irish residents of the Tenderloin rioted against their black neighbors indiscriminately in a, in a violent random tear, injuring dozens of innocent black New Yorkers. To quote from friend of the show, Eric Washington, in his book, Boss of the Grips, quote, for weeks following the unrest, newspapers across the country raptly recorded accounts of police colluding, by and large, with the vicious gangs. If the accounts are true, some white men acted last night like beasts, magistrate Robert C. Cornell said, censuring the police in the Tenderloin, whose own hatred aided and incited abuse of innocent
0: blacks. And that is just one example of the dangers uh, that were faced by black New Yorkers um, on the streets of New York. And this should also
1: be placed into context here. You know, hundreds of lynchings were occurring in the United States and in this decade, mostly in the South. And also, we have to think about this in light of Jim Crow, which was not, of course, just a Southern phenomenon. Now, the same year as the riot, okay, but just a few months earlier... Another significant event in New York City history occurred, and one which would set in motion the creation of Black Harlem. And that would be the contract signing on February 21st, 1900, between the City of New York and the Rapid Transit Construction Company, financed by August Belmont. Work then began on the construction of the city's very first subway tunnel, from City
0: Hall to West 145th Street in Harlem. So how would this new subway help African-American New Yorkers finally find a neighborhood of their own? We'll get to that story right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate.
1: So in 1900, the big announcement that would change the city's history, the announcement of the very first subway line to be constructed. And where specifically would this line be?
0: Well, this first line would make its way from City Hall up to Grand Central, head over to Times Square, and then up under Broadway. Now at 96th Street, a line would then shoot off to the east, under Central Park, and then head up Lenox Avenue, making stops at 110th, 116th, 125th, 135th, and 145th, and then eventually under the Harlem River to Mott Avenue in the Bronx. Now, taking some
1: previous examples that we've just mentioned on our show to heart, you can only imagine the possibilities, the speculation, which occurred when people found out the specific route of this brand new subway.
0: Oh, it was like the speculative land buying spree of the 1870s all over again. It was like a bonanza. <laughs> yeah, but but this time it was even crazier because construction for the subway was literally happening. They were literally cutting into the middle of the street. Block after block of row houses and apartment buildings were now being constructed. And, you know, if you just imagine the physical topography of Harlem was being totally transformed. These developers were pitching Harlem as as a commuter's dream. Here you could have more space. There were modern buildings with, you know, new modern amenities. There was easy access to, to jobs downtown because of the subway here, but also because of all of those elevated lines. Perhaps to no one's surprise, this actually led to too much building. Right, an oversupply of housing, in which landlords were actually competing for tenants. Um, I found a clip in the New York Tribune from August 23rd of 1900 about how some major landlords in Harlem had formed a group to protect their rents. Uh, The group was called the Protective Association of Harlem Property Holders. This article says that they hope to, quote, do away with some of the evils which have made Harlem real estate less remunerative than it ought to be. Apartment houses especially have suffered from excessive building operations. Speculative builders, in their eagerness to fill up their houses, have granted long terms of free rent to tenants. And they were using other kind of shady practices to get people in here in 1900 years before the subway would even open. So just
1: a ton of housing. I would even say the housing market here is bloated. Were any of these brand new uh, housing developments and row houses, were any of them available to black New Yorkers?
0: By 1900, there were some buildings in upper Manhattan and Harlem that were open to mostly, you know, well-off, wealthy or middle-class black families including on Broadway between 125th and 126th, and along Lenox Avenue, especially around 135th Street. But the vast majority of landlords were not open to black tenants, especially here in central Harlem, and especially along these blocks of new row houses and upscale apartment buildings. Most landlords feared that renting to black residents would actually be bad for business, that it would actually drive down the rental price in the entire building. Even renting to one family could drive other tenants out and drive down their rental prices and, and their property value. The buildings that were renting out to black tenants were charging them, for the most part, more than they charged to white renters. And that fact, you know, this racist rent hike for black residents would be noticed by a young man from Westfield, Massachusetts, named Philip Payton Jr. Now, he'd been born in 1876. He had attended some college, uh, but he dropped out to work as a barber with his brothers and his father. And he eventually moved to New York in 1899, when he was 23 years old, to find work. He worked some odd jobs, and one of which was at a real estate business, where he worked as a porter and kind of you know, watched the realtors at work and and learned the basics of the real estate business. And a year after he moved here in 1900, Peyton decided to launch his own real estate business on West 32nd Street, which failed in Midtown. So he moved his business up to Harlem, uh, where he set up shop specializing in helping African-American tenants rent apartments. So then- what
1: was his strategy here, you know, given the the racism that he faced in this neighborhood and this unwillingness to rent to black New Yorkers? Like, what did he have up his sleeve?
0: Well, Payne's plan was actually to convince landlords that he could help them, you know, fill up their struggling buildings. Because remember, there was this oversupply. And, and he believed that he could help them fill them up with black tenants to whom you know, the landlords could charge a higher rent than they could to white tenants. His plan allowed for landlords to charge 10% more to black tenants, and Peyton himself would would collect the rent and manage the buildings.
1: So so that's a very clever idea, but isn't it a little bit morally ambiguous
0: here? Yes, it's it's a bit confusing, because on one hand, you know, he was sort of continuing... This racist practice, right, of charging African-American tenants more. But at the same time, it also meant that he was helping them secure housing in Harlem. Like new
1: housing, in fact. Quality housing.
0: And it was, a, it was rough going at first. The first building that he attempted to manage in 1901 just didn't work out well for him. And he and his wife Maggie were actually evicted from the building and he lost the job. But things would soon turn around for him. He later recounted to the black newspaper, The New York Age, that his first big break came in 1901. He said, quote, my first opportunity came as a result of a dispute between two landlords in West 134th Street. To get even, one of them turned his house over to me to fill with colored tenants. I was successful in renting and managing this house. After a time, I was able to induce other landlords to give me their houses to manage.
1: So in this specific case, in this one apartment building, he was hired to fill it with black residents with the idea that it was going to lower the rents in another building?
0: Yeah. Because of the dispute between these two landlords, one hired him to fill his own building with black tenants in order to drive the white tenants away from his competitor's building. This plan worked out pretty well, and he was soon managing several apartment buildings in the neighborhood, all of which had switched over from white to African-American tenants. And his business grew. Um, he became you know, famous in Harlem's black community. And among those residents who were looking to move up you know, from the west side, And he also ran ads in the newspaper targeting landlords who were looking to fill up their buildings. Um, I found one here from the New York Times in 1903 in the real estate section on March 1st, 1903. Colored tenements wanted. Colored man makes a specialty of managing colored tenements. Philip A. Payton, Jr., agent and broker, 67 West 134th Street. A couple months later in September, colored tenements, profitably managed, colored specialist, first and best in this line in the city. You know, so he was, this was his niche.
1: He was the go-to guy for this very specific real estate need.
0: And very successful. And just to kind of underscore the changes that were taking place in the neighborhood, he and his wife Maggie then bought a Victorian townhouse located at 13 West 131st Street, which had previously been home to a manufacturer named Ernest Rothschild and his family. This had been an all-white street of Victorian homes just three years before he bought it. And all of this was Before the
1: subway even opened, Mm -hmm. right? So I imagine that the sort of real estate world up here, generally speaking, once they kind of discovered what he was doing here, that they probably weren't too pleased with his strategy.
0: Yeah, there had been so much money that had been spent on speculation and development up here. And now, you know, the racial makeup of the neighborhood, especially around 135th Street, was starting to change in a very noticeable way. In 1904, one developer, the Hudson Realty Company, which had very deep pockets and a a VIP list of well-connected white investors, they purchased and combined lots at 135th and Lenox. and, And they were working on selling it off to upscale developers. Okay, And in order to maximize the value of their land and get a premium price on it, in April of 1904, Hudson also purchased the three tenements that were located directly across 135th Street from their land and evicted all of the black tenants from those buildings.
1: Did they have the authority to just sweep in and evict all the black tenants like who had agreements to live there?
0: Yeah. Fair housing laws wouldn't come along for decades and would obviously come along because of racist practices like this. But the Hudson Realty Company assumed that their land on the north side of 135th would be more valuable if there weren't any black residents across the street from it. And this is where Peyton comes in, because his office was a block away on 134th. He saw this injustice, and he also probably saw a threat to his own business, you know, in the immediate neighborhood. In July of 1904, he and some other prominent black New Yorkers, including associates of Booker T. Washington, organized their own real real estate company, the Afro-American Realty Company. They raised $500,000 through stock sales to African-American investors, including small investors in the neighborhood. And they, they started buying real estate for the first time, really buying it in the neighborhood. This company by buying up real estate for black tenants had an opportunity, Payton said, to solve what he called the so-called race problem. And they explained it. The company explained it to potential investors that, quote, race prejudice is a luxury. And like all other luxuries, can be made very expensive in New York City. The very prejudice which has heretofore worked against us can be turned and used to our profit.
1: Like, whereas before, Peyton had just literally been an agent for white landlords to fill buildings, now this new realty company was actually purchasing properties for black residents to move into. But what if the buildings that they were intending on purchasing, what if those buildings already had white tenants in them?
0: Well, he could evict them which he did the next year in December of 1905, back at that contested spot on 135th near Lenox, where the Hudson Company had evicted the black tenants. That month in December of 1905, his Afro-American realty company bought two rather modest buildings that were located next to Hudson's property. And then he evicted all of their white tenants. And this news made the mainstream press. The New York Times covered it on Sunday, December 15th, 1905. Headline Real Estate Race War is Started in Harlem. Dispossessed white men asked Negroes to be allowed to stay. The article starts White folks, hat in hand, filed into the real estate office of Philip A. Payton Jr. in West 134th Street yesterday and pleaded that they might be left in undisturbed possession of their little flats. Over the holidays. They were the few remaining white tenants of three tenement houses in West 135th Street who had received dispossessed notices because Philip A. Payton Jr. had obtained title to the houses where they made their homes and decided to put out the white tenants and put in Negroes instead. Incidentally, The white tenants now being dispossessed are now experiencing the fate visited upon a set of Negro tenants a year ago last April. It was the dispossessing of these that led to the organization of the Afro-American Company, which has since prospered and brought a, quote, Negro invasion close enough to the doors of a white neighborhood to make the property owners willing to sell out to save their own holdings from depreciation. And then just at the bottom of the article, it concludes the Payton Realty Office is now the center of one of the largest Negro neighborhoods in the city. Even the private houses there are occupied by colored families or colored business establishments. So obviously, then, as this article points out, this wasn't an isolated incident. This was the new real estate reality that was happening up here. So
1: that was 1905. So a lot of factors here at play, because we now have the subway open. We have this ingrained racism in the housing market, but then you also have this overheated, you know, housing market up here as well.
0: Yeah, and I I think that taken together, you know, these forces kind of collided into a a greater willingness to rent to African-Americans, at least by some landlords. As as Mike Wallace writes in his book, Greater Gotham, quote, with so many other exciting neighborhoods having come online. Um, I think he's referring, for example, to the Upper West Side. The supply of housing far outpaced demand. Landlords competed for tenants. Rents plummeted. Speculators fell behind in payments to financial institution lenders, who then threatened foreclosure. A wave of desperation sales followed, Facing ruin, some hitherto recalcitrant landlords decided to rent or sell to blacks.
1: And slowly but surely, the black community was very willing to move to this neighborhood.
0: It was safer, especially following, you know, the anti-black violence in the streets of Hell's Kitchen in 1900. And there was more in San Juan Hill in 1905. Tensions were being felt by African-Americans elsewhere that were pushing them toward Harlem, just as some of the white residents in Harlem were leaving Harlem for less racially mixed neighborhoods that were opening up, like the Upper West Side.
1: So then whatever happened to Philip Payton?
0: Well, his Afro-American realty company would have considerable success and it would get a lot of attention, although... As a corporation, unfortunately, it it didn't really end up delivering the profits and the dividends that its stockholders expected. They would sue Payton in 1907, and the company would go bankrupt and close in 1908. Payton, however, would continue on. He would operate a smaller real estate business in the neighborhood until he died in 1917. In later decades, he would be remembered as the father of Harlem, especially in the black press, unsurprisingly, in in New York, you know, largely overlooked by the mainstream press. However, just as recently as 2019, Philip Payton would receive a full, long overdue obituary in the New York Times as part of their overlooked series, an obituary written by Adil Hassan.
1: Well, in terms of our story, the torch is being passed to several other real estate agents who were inspired by the work of Philip Payton, including two former employees of the Afro-American Realty Company, realtors Henry G. Parker and John E. Nail. Now, I want to spend a moment talking about Nail because he's actually a very fascinating figure here. John Nail was born on August 22nd, 1883 in Connecticut, moved to New York as a kid, and actually got the real estate bug from his father, who had owned some property in Harlem and had even operated a very prominent saloon for black patrons in the Tenderloin District when uh, John was in high school. John even worked at the saloon, I read in a couple places. And so then Nail then got a job at Payton's company, African American Realty. And then by 1907, when Payton's company was, you know, faltering here, he then left with fellow realtor Henry C. Parker. And then they formed Nail and Parker Associates.
0: So then Nail and Parker, his partner, were quite successful. Yeah, they were perhaps the most important name in real estate, you know, around
1: by 1910 or, or something like that, at least on the rental properties, collecting up to $1 million in rent. The two men were so beloved that they actually gained the nicknames of the Little Fathers of Harlem, a sort of parallel to Peyton's nickname as the Father of Harlem, to quote from the New York Age on March 30th of 1911. The Harlem WAG heard about the million-dollar deal recently made by Nail and Parker. The difference between Nail and Parker and many other of the big ones is that they are swapping houses while many are just swapping stories.
0: Mm -hmm. Well said. Did you say a million-dollar deal? That wasn't just for one house.
1: No, this was for a church. In particular, oh. St. Philip's Episcopal Church, which was a congregation that traces its history back to the year 1809, and its first house of worship was in Lower Manhattan. Now, there had traditionally been smaller churches catering to black congregants here in Harlem, you know, tracing back as far as the 1830s. But St. Philip's was very significant because this was where the wealthiest, most prominent black families went to church. In the late 19th century, they were situated at 7th Avenue and 25th Street, so like right on the edge of the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. And they were there when they made this very unique deal with Nail and Parker.
0: And this was a lot of money. So this was, Mm -hmm. they were not just buying one property, right? No, this is, this is interesting.
1: It's, it's actually the church buying houses, a stretch of buildings on 135th Street between Lenox and 7th Avenue. These were originally, like, like many of the other things you had mentioned, were formerly white only. But then when the buildings were purchased, they, of course, quickly became available for black tenants. Then, in part because of rental income, St. Philip's was able to then buy land and then construct a brand new church at 204 West 134th Street, a 900-seat neo-Gothic space which opened in 1911. And is St. Philip's still there? Oh, yes, it is. And what makes this an especially notable landmark is the architect, of this church. This is an early work by Vertner Woodson Tandy, the very first African American architect registered in New York State, and by his partner, another black architect named George Washington Foster. This is a landmark. St. Philip's became a landmark in 1993, and it soon paved the way for other downtown black churches to make their way up to Harlem, a decision which was made much easier as the years went by as more black residents made Harlem their home.
0: And did this move then by St. Philip's? encourage other churches to to move up to Harlem and also build new churches? Well, a lot of congregations didn't have the same resources that St.
1: Philip's did. So many churches opted for buying pre-existing churches that had been predominantly white congregations. And in mm. fact, that's, that's what St. Philip's originally tried to do. But one congregation that did succeed was Mother African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, or or Mother Zion for short. And that church is really old. It traces its origin back to the year 1796 down on John Street. What they did here is they actually moved into a Harlem church that was vacated by the white parishioners of the Church of the Redeemer on West 136th Street, okay? Over a decade later, in 1925 then, Mother Zion would then build their own house of worship on West 137th Street, designed by architect George Washington Foster, one of the two architects of St. Philip's.
0: So this is really interesting. So the church is then coming up here work in a way as a magnet, right, to pull Mm -hmm. their congregants also up to Harlem.
1: I mean, there's no bigger center of community and social action than the Black church here at the start of the 20th century. And the migration of these major churches would continue here into the next couple decades as Harlem became more and more prominent. But even by 1910, half of New York's Black population lived in Harlem. I saw one figure that stated that around 1914, there were approximately 50,000 black residents of Harlem. And in particular, they lived on several blocks, not surprising given the addresses we've been throwing out here, several blocks more or less between West 130th and West 140th, between Fifth Avenue and Seventh Avenue.
0: And of course, this whole time, we've just been talking about the housing and the apartments and churches, these buildings that brought the African American community up here. Those structures were all in place. But of course, the commercial interests by this time were not really in place. Those were lagging.
1: Yes, they lagged far behind, and that's because uh, these new black residents were still vastly outnumbered by white residents here in Harlem. So as a result, then, black shoppers, for instance, were subjected to second-class treatment at white-owned department stores. Down on 125th Street, so just a few blocks south...
0: That main entertainment drag with the department stores and theaters... That was still very much a white
1: destination. For instance, a place called Hertig and Siemens New Burlesque Theater, that would be the theater that would later in history become...
0: The Apollo Theater.
1: Th- that burlesque house was a whites-only venue when it opened in 1914. And then on that same block across the street, the Hotel Teresa opened, and that opened as a whites Only hotel in 1913. Later, the Hotel Teresa would become known as the Waldorf of Harlem and a centerpiece destination for the Harlem Renaissance. But in truth, they did not allow black guests until 1940. So here in the 19 teens, the white population of Harlem, which far outnumbered the new African American community, Most were not too eager to share their neighborhood with this new group. In our next episode, we will look at how the white residents of Old Harlem actually fought back very aggressively against this new black wave of tenants. But we'll also explore how Harlem became not merely a neighborhood where blacks could live and work, but became a black mecca. For the entire country.
0: And that is all thanks to one very great migration. Check out
1: our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, with lots of images of Harlem from this particular period, two or three maps so you can kind of orient yourself as we go through the show and throw out all of these different addresses. That link will be in our show notes. In addition, you can also check us out on social media on Twitter. Facebook, and Instagram.
0: A huge thank you to those who have joined us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Because of your small monthly donations, Greg and I are able to produce the Bowery Boys full-time.
1: And for those who support us on Patreon, you get a lot of bonus audio, including a brand new episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club, which we just released last week. That is looking at the 1963 movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. So there are a lot of little black dresses uh, (laughs) and
0: uh, a lot of pastries being eaten in front of Tiffany's. And a very, very long cigarette holder. Join the movie party. And thank you for your support by joining us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And we'd like to give a
1: particular shout out to patrons Molly G., Tom M., William P., Sonny M., Lewis M., Raquel G., Una C., and Trenton S. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon.
0: And thank you for joining us today. We'll see you again for part two of our History of Black Harlem in a couple of weeks.
1: But check the feed next week because there is a special surprise related to this show. Oh, So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.